What's your definition of freedom? I just, I don't want you to say it out loud. I just want you to think for a moment. If somebody came up to you and asked you, what's your definition of freedom, what would you say? And is there a difference between the freedom a nation has and the freedom that its citizens have? See, as a nation, we can determine our own laws. We can determine what we're about, right? So nations have that kind of freedom. But as an individual, how would you define freedom? A person's freedom. Can they do whatever he or she wants? Now, before you answer, let me play off of this for just a second. Do you have freedom to buy a house in America? Not in all countries. You don't have the freedom to buy a house. If you live in a communist country, you live under a totalitarian regime, you might not be able to buy a house. Are you allowed to buy a house in America if you have the means? Yeah. Do you have the freedom to take your neighbor's house in America? Not yet, right? But no, we, we don't. So is there a difference between freedom and freedoms? You see, our nation has gotten away from absolute truth. And believe it or not, if you were to go out and go to the farmer's market uh, this coming Saturday and take a poll and ask people, what do you think freedom is? They're probably going to mainline it and say, I get to do whatever I want. That's what freedom is. I get to pick and choose. There's no restraints on me. But unfortunately, everybody can't do whatever they want. I mean, you're not above the law. You're not above common courtesy. Because when you say that I can do whatever, I can sleep who, what I, with, with who I want, I can do whatever I want, you're basically rejecting law. You're, you're rejecting regulations, rules. You're really rejecting the rights of others, right? If I get to do whatever I want, I will eventually infringe upon your rights. Rejection of authority follows logically from then moral relativism. We want no one else making rules for us or holding us accountable for what we do or say. Yes, there are laws, but it seems like not a lot of people are enforcing those laws. And moral relativism then naturally leads to rejection of authority. Like, Rob, you're talking really heavy in your intro. What is going on? But I, this is important. I want you to grasp this, that as we say no holes bar, we get to live any way we want to. We start infringing upon the rights of others and suddenly we're going to transition down into kearchy. In fact, Diane had an incident this week where somebody followed her into a place of business just to scream at her. Did he have the right to do that? I don't think he did. And you just go, what's going on? People are getting in cars. They use their cars to bully people. They do it at work. They do it in school. They do it in marriages. It seems like, whoa, what's going on? Well, I have the right to do this. Wait a second. That's a messed up definition of freedom. And when moral relativism that leads to rejection of authority, because you have to, that's the eventual road you're going to get down to. I don't want any one of you telling me what to do in my life. You're going to see the breakdown of the family. You're going to see the breakdown of schools, of church, of government, of police, society in general. When no one wants to be held accountable to anyone else, 
When everybody is doing whatever they want, the only thing that survives is anarchy. Now, real freedoms will only survive, even thrive, when they are based on similar, on the same law, and that it is applied equally to everybody. Right is right and wrong is wrong when we play by the same rules, right? Everybody's playing equally. But if right is now wrong and wrong is now right, depending on who you are, depending on how much money you have, depending on what gender you are, depending on where you live, I mean, the law isn't applied equally anymore, is it? It doesn't seem to. This politician can do this, and this serviceman does this, and this guy gets in jail, and this one gets an award. Wait, they broke the same law. Well, that's what happens when people become above the law. That's called the rule of law. Now, why am I bringing this up? We're in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is about to talk about this. That's the backdrop. Jesus is going to tell us how to live in his kingdom. The world, it's going to live any way it wants to. And you're going to see good periods of culture and bad periods of culture. And you're going to see anarchy and you're going to see all time. But we live in Jesus' kingdom. And he is telling us through the Sermon on the Mount, this is how we're supposed to live as Christians, as followers of Christ, when we live in this crazy world where everybody does whatever they want to do. The world and its philosophies are not based in truth. But Jesus' kingdom is. He is the absolute basis for truth, for laws, for morals, for defining right and wrong. And when you live under His rule of law, you're going to find out you're really free. You are free to move about the boundaries that are His love and grace and mercy. It's really going to set you free. So, have your Bibles with you. I hope you do. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to pick it up at verse 17. We have a lot of ground to cover today. We're going to do it. There's always the chance to go back and go deeper. But I want to just do a 30,000 foot level drop on this Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 beginning at verse 17. Jesus basically, we're picking up exactly where we left off last week. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, the word of God. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not a little itty bitty part of the word of God will pass until all is accomplished. And then he goes on and says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, who are the scribes and the Pharisees? They're the posers. They're the posers of their day. It means that you look like an Oreo cookie Christian. That means you have one appearance on the outside, but in the middle, you're not the same. And it's all about posing. It's, it's not what's really going on in your heart. And Jesus is about to tack the moral relativism of his day and our day. And the notion that you can take God's word and bend it and twist it. So it really doesn't have any 
meaning and you just kind of do your own thing. So he starts off, first of all, by affirming that God's law is right and he's teaching it. He's not breaking it. He's actually fulfilling it. Now, six times Jesus is going to say, you have heard it said by the rabbis. That's who he's quoting. You have heard it said by this material that the Jewish nation put out that was based on the word of God. And then he says, but I say unto you. So he is throwing down his absolute truth. He says, these guys got it wrong. It is all about externals for them. And my kingdom isn't about that kind of lifestyle. My kingdom is an internal kingdom. And so God's moral standard isn't just about being law-abiding on the outside. It's about it residing in your heart. Righteousness is a matter of the heart. Jesus said it's the thoughts that come out of a man's heart that make him dirty, defile him and ugly. It's not so much the execution as it is the thought has to originate somewhere, right? So living in the freedom of Christ is a heart issue. And Jesus is just going to shout out to all the rule benders and the self-righteous and the Oreo cookie Christians that the spirit of the law, the spirit of God's word is more important than the letter of the law. Are you with me on that? Somebody, okay, you're with me on that. Some of you are. So here's, here, so we're just going to tackle them, and, and we have some fill-in-the-blanks that are going to come up here in a second. But the first one, go back to the text, and he's going to deal with anger. He says, verse 21, you have heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. You're guilty if you murder somebody if the circumstances are, are such. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And then he goes on and he says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, to the Supreme Court, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hells of fire. And then he kind of takes this little turn. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you because you did something to him, you messed him over, you stole from him, you slandered him, you did something to a brother. And brother isn't just Christian brother, it means anybody in the world. If you've done somebody wrong, Jesus says, leave your gift before the altar and go and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Don't just change churches. Are you with me? Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court because you've done something wrong. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So Jesus, here's the fill in the blank. You shall not murder, but I say that everyone who is angry with his brother is guilty of murder already. You just, don't, you just haven't done it yet. You'd like to. How many of you would like to murder somebody sometime? Oh, I've had those thoughts. Oh, I just, I want to run people off the road sometimes. They've run me off the road. We'll talk about that in a second. And it's just like, that is where that starts. You don't wake up and kill somebody without first a precursor, a, a, a motive. 
This word angry, though, by the way, in the original language, it isn't meaning, okay, I stubbed my toe, I got angry. Tammy uh, hit me in the middle of the night. She hit me earlier, didn't she, Bob? Right here. She, she was hitting me earlier. Yeah, see, I have a witness. It's not that kind of angry and then you kind of get over it. The Bible says don't let the anger go down on your, on your, uh, on your anger. I, I flipped it, didn't I? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. There you go. Don't let the sun go. In other words, anger is an emotional response. I get angry. You get angry. What you do with it is do not sin. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I just had them flipped up in my mind. This kind of anger, though, Jesus uses, a, or the, the text tells us, a very specific kind of anger. It means a brooding, simmering anger that is nurtured. You're actually feeding that anger. You're causing this root of bitterness to come up in your heart because you are ticked off. Can I say that in church? You are so upset and you just keep feeding on it and feeding on it. And you don't allow it to die. This kind of anger is seen like holding a grudge, refusal to forgive, and it relives the incident. You've never done that, right? You've never replayed the, the tape in your mind of something that's gone on in your life? Yes, we have. And it lives in resentment. Now this word, it, it, go back to the text though. He says, okay, if, if you are angry with your brother, this kind of angry, you're, you're guilty of what causes murder. You're already there. But then he goes on and he says, and who, I say to you that everyone is angry, whoever insults his brothers will be also guilty. Now, you see, one was just, I'm angry. Now I've begun to verbalize my anger by insulting. Gossip is part of that. But just, hey, you idiot. You, you empty-headed fool. You, you, you can think of all the words that you've called people over your lifetime because you were, what, angry with them. And then the last one, though, he says, and whoever says you fool... Verse 22, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. That sounds pretty bold of Jesus. Uh, you have to understand, though, the Bible, when it calls somebody a fool, that means you're sitting in judgment of them. The word fool is almost equivalent to sinner. If you say you are a sinner, you are wicked, you are evil, you have now placed your role as judge and jury. And so you've moved from just having a thought of being angry to now you're verbalized your anger and now you're judging them. And you've decided that they're guilty. And Jesus said, man, you, you, this, this thing is not an external thing. This is a heart thing. Jesus is teaching us this, that, that it's, a, it's an issue of the heart. And as long as there's internal sin... You can't then come to church and pretend everything's okay. Mark Moore said it this way, correct interpersonal relationships are more important than correct ritual. So what, what's the spirit of the law? It's a precursor to murder. You have to deal with it. 
We get angry. We have to deal with it. If we're going to be a part of Jesus' kingdom, we have to deal with it the way he wants us to deal with it. Settle the issue. If you've wronged somebody, go settle the issue. Don't play the hypocrite. Hey, I ripped my neighbor off this week, but I've come to church and I'm going to give an offering to the Lord because the Lord thinks I'm so awesome. And he's going to say, put that down and go make amends with your neighbor who you did wrong to. You don't want to be a hypocrite by asking for forgiveness for yourself without even repenting on the stuff that you're doing to your neighbor or your brother. So now he goes, so I say unto you about anger, now look, look at the next one. Verse 27, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, I love the way the ESV describes that, because David could have just looked at Bathsheba and said, oh, there's a woman bathing. Went back inside. But this is a present participle. That means you keep on looking. Your intent is coming out from your heart because you're like, oh, I'm going to see what this woman looks like. That's what David started thinking. And he, he basically says, do not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in their heart. The lustful looking is the expression of the heart. Adultery then is more of a heart issue, not the physical issue. I mean, it's physical. Don't get me wrong. But you're going to have to deal with that. And then he goes on. Look what he says. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Jesus is using hyperbole. You're not, because what would happen if you gouged out your eye and threw it away? You still had another eye to look at women. What he's saying is, is anything in your life that you need to get rid of because it is feeding your lust. And he says, it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it's better to use, lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. Jesus' point is that we should be willing to give up anything that's necessary, even if it's important to us, like a right eye and a right hand, if it's causing us to act like the world and not like him. It's pretty straightforward. And he says, yeah, you can say, oh, I've never committed adultery. But he says, in my kingdom, I don't look at the externals. I look at a person's heart. And that's where the real person resides, right? And then he goes on. And uh, can you go on to the spirit of the law? Lust or adultery is a heart issue. You have to deal with it. Jesus isn't condemning. He's just like, this isn't the way my kingdom operates. And then he goes on and he talks about divorce just for two sentences. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Here's the fill in the blank. Divorce destroys families. You do not have to be a rocket scientist to understand that. I'm a child of divorce. There are lots of you are children of divorce. Or maybe you were in a divorce. 
And you're like, okay, I understand that. God doesn't like divorce. Sometimes it's acceptable. He has standards. And a lot of times, though, in Jesus' day and in our day, I want another woman. Easy way to get another woman is to hand her a piece of paper so I can go have her or her or her or her. What I've done is legalized adultery by just handing her a slip of paper. And what does... What happens to Tammy? What happens to my children? They're going to go in a life of poverty, especially in that culture. Boy, if you were the man, you had everything. If you were a woman, you had little rights. So I am forcing her to go look for another husband. She doesn't want the divorce. Do you know, this is crazy. There were Jewish rabbis that were very popular in Jesus' day. One was Hillel. H-I-L-L-E-L. He said, you could divorce your wife if she burnt the toast. Jesus is nailing these guys, saying, you guys, you have so twisted what Moses gave. He said, if you have to get a divorce, give the woman a certificate. That way, it doesn't ruin her reputation in the small little village. And it is because of the hardness of your hearts that I'm even allowing that only for sexual immorality on her part. But you, man, should not be divorcing your wife just because you want another woman. You have legalized adultery and have violated the Word of God. Wow. Let's go back to the text. Let's talk about oaths. Again, you have heard it said, of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the great city of the great King. And do not take an oath by your head, for you can't even make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And you're like, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Why can't we take oaths? It's not what's going on here. Let me first, you can do the fill in the blank, but let, let me tell you what these Pharisees were doing. Or maybe you did this as a child. Did you ever make a promise, but when you made the promise, you had your fingers like this? What did that mean? Means your word wasn't any good, right? Or you're making a promise, sure, I'll watch your home while you're gone on vacation and water all your flowers, wink. The wink says, I have no intention of doing that. The Pharisees were such posers they were such hypocrites, they were so self-righteous that they would agree to things and then get out of it by their fancy oaths. Oh, well, I didn't swear by God. I swore by the temple, and you were dumb enough that you fell for it, and that's why I didn't make good on my promise. And that's why Jesus says, and here's the next fill in the blank, mean what you say and say what you mean. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. It wasn't that they were taking an oath to confirm their commitment in their marriage. They were taking an oath saying, sure, I'll be faithful. I swear by the throne that the king sits on. And then later come back and say, well, that doesn't mean anything because the throne means nothing. And that's why Jesus gives all these examples. 
says, you're swearing by this. I swear to God. I swear to by the throne of God. I swear by Jerusalem. I swear. And it was just a ruse. And Jesus said, as a follower of Christ living in his kingdom, have no deception in your heart when you make agreements with people. Don't say, I'm coming to the party even though you have no intention to come into the party. Yeah, I have intention to show up to work, but you have no intention to show up to work. A Christian doesn't do that. A Christ follower doesn't do that. Yes, I'm coming to work. No, I have no intention of coming to work today because you bug me. Okay, at least it's honest, right? We need to wrap up. I know I was covering a lot of ground today, so I apologize, but in a way I don't. You know, it's just, it's the text, so we have to do it. Let's go back to verse 38. You have heard it said this, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Oh, those are hard words. What does it mean, Jesus? Verse 40, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What's the fill in the blank? Retaliation must be equal. By the way, that's what it meant, an eye for an eye. Let's say Scott, as my son-in-law, and I got in a fight. And he threw a, a, a knuckle buster at me. And he broke a tooth off. I could say, the law says I can take a tooth. But I'm really mad at him. So I want to take two teeth. And so God put this provision to limit retaliation. It's not a command you have to take his tooth. If he was to knock a tooth out, I would not go knock his tooth out because a Christ follower says, uh, Jesus says, do not retaliate. But the Pharisees, the old law says, if he took a tooth, I get to take a tooth. And Jesus is saying no. And then Jesus gives these three examples. In his culture, if you were to get slapped in the face or spit in the face, you were legally authorized to slap him back. I don't know if you've ever been slapped. I don't think I've ever been slapped. I don't want to be slapped. But I've seen people get slapped. And what a humiliating and degrading thing to be slapped, right? And Jesus says, if you've got slapped, what he means when he says, turn the other cheek, he says, it's your move. What are you going to do? Are you going to hit them back? Or are you going to say, I'm okay? And he gives these, these other examples as well. He says, if somebody takes something from you, and I'll pick on Brittany, Brittany takes my cow. I can go take her cow, cow back, right? But I decide, no, I'm not going to retaliate. I'm going to get my own cow back, but I'm not going to then do and stoop down to her level have you ever been in an argument and they're, and they're getting dirty on you? And they're, and they're doing low blows? Do you stoop down to their level? That's what this is all about. Or do you take the high road and say, you know what? Even though you slapped me, even though you spit on me, even though you took my cow, I'm not going to demand that I get to do the same things to you. That's what this is all about. It is a heart issue 
And the spirit of the law is don't retaliate. Okay, last one. We're going to get through this. Beginning at verse 43. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who only love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the other people? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you must be perfect, and that is mature, not perfect like sinless. It's the word mature. You must be mature as your heavenly Father is mature. In other words, you love your enemies. You love your enemies. That's, that's the hardest thing. So Jesus comes on the scene. He's, t- he's teaching Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about absolute truth. He's talking about not living by moral relativism, doing whatever you want to do, however you want to do it, and then backing it up with this twisted view of Scripture. He says, my followers live differently than the world. And so every time something's going on in your heart or in your life, you have to come back and say, what's my motivation in my heart? What's driving me to do this? We don't live by the letter of the law. We're not posers. We're not supposed to be posers. But when we act like a hypocrite, the world then says, You are a poser. But this Jesus thing, it's real. He's the one that empowers us to deal with our anger. He's the one that strips us away from our lust. And it's not just lust of a woman. It's lust of power. It's a lust of prestige. It's a love of self-worth. It's a love of yourself. It's sinner, self-centeredness. Jesus comes in and has the power to break that off of you. And then you start to see that, oh man... I need to say what I mean and mean what I say. And I I need to love my enemies. And then we start living in His kingdom. And you know what happens to you? You start rising above this world. You really start rising above this world. And you don't get caught up in this pettiness and this ugliness. And suddenly it's just like, wow, how am I doing this? That's because you're living from the heart and not just being a poser. Who are you trying to impress anyways? But Jesus will give you the strength, the power, but also the wisdom to start being transformed into the man or the woman that he is dreaming you to be. Charles is 90. Charles, have you changed a little over the years? Stella, has he changed a little? Yeah. You know, by the grace of God, when we start living out the spirit of the word, it starts changing us. We don't have to go, I'm going to go home and work on patience. It just starts happening because we're allowing Jesus to live in us. Let me pray.